Church Dads Podcast. Join Mark Haas and Curtis Ketty as they discuss faith, family, liturgy, current events, and fatherhood. Be a part of the discussion by emailing churchdadspodcast at gmail.com. Now, here are the dads. Hello, hello. Welcome to Church Dads Podcast. This is a monthly podcast hosted by myself, Mark Hawes, and my good friend, Curtis Ketty. Happy month of May, and happy month of our Blessed Mother. The month of May is a special month set aside by the Church for a special devotion to um, the Mother of our Lord. May also happens to be a month that is unbelievably busy for people who work for the church. We've just wrapped up Easter. Uh, we're starting to move toward Pentecost. We're doing things within the sacraments like uh, First Communions, maybe lots of baptisms, weddings, you name it. Springtime seems to be the time. Oh, the Divine Mercy Sunday. There's so many things that seem to stack up, rightfully so, but it just makes for a busy time for us employees of the church. Um, one of those is, of course, Curtis, who, like myself, is unbelievably busy right now. But have no fear, we are not leaving you orphaned. Today we have a very special episode, which um, is a talk by Curtis. As you can tell by now, he's not with us right now. Um, so I thought I would give an introduction to a fantastic talk that Curtis gave about three years ago at a parish that we were both working for in Yorba Linda, California. And he's giving a talk to an RCAA class about faith. And it's, it's just mind-blowing. It's mind-blowing. And it's, it's, it's a great talk. I very much encourage you to stay on the line and listen. And one thing Curtis points out during his talk is how, you know, we're, we're in faith because of the example sometimes of other people, sometimes a family member, a friend, people we've witnessed um, acting on this faith, this gift they've been given. And um, it's so appropriate, you know, to put it on our podcast, and it's so appropriate that you know, Curtis gives this talk, and, and he's talking about being an example of faith because that's exactly the person he is, at least for me personally. He is an example of faith, and um, I, I hope you listen to the whole talk. It is fantastic. It is life-changing, just as his friendship is to me, life-changing. So, without further ado, this is Mr. Curtis Ketty talking about faith. All right, let's pray. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Heavenly Father, thank you for this beautiful morning. Thank you that we can come together and hear your word and struggle with what you have to offer to us. I pray that we would uh, leave this morning changed, that we would leave with a new perspective, a new sight, a new way of seeing the world that is rooted in faith. Pray this in your Son's name, Amen. In the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, Amen. Okay, so we're talking about faith. And this is uh, very profound and very personal. Um, in fact, it's, it's so simple that it's, 
it's so profound to me. And it was, it's almost like I hesitate to talk about faith because it is so rich and so deep, but yet so important. It's at the core of everything. Um, the church calls faith a theological virtue. There are three theological virtues. Faith, hope, and love or charity. Theological virtue is just a fancy way of saying that these are gifts that God gives us. It's not something that we muster up on our own, but it's actually something that is a gift of God. Now I want you to think about that. How is faith a gift of God? Isn't faith something that I like, I'm going to have faith? Isn't it a decision? I heard some people saying, is it, it's an action. Isn't it something that I do, that I make the decision, that I'm going to have faith? Isn't that what this whole process is about, me trying to have more faith? And I would say to all of that, no. <laughs> this is not something that we do. It's something that is given to us. And if that's still making you kind of, I don't understand, uncomfortable... Let me put it in this frame of reference. All of those virtues, faith, hope, and love, are based in relationship. They're based in relationship. It is impossible to have faith, hope, or love in a vacuum on your own. For example, hope. Hope. Imagine that I tied you up. You're going to think I'm really twisted. Imagine if I tied you up, put you in a coffin, and buried you alive. Okay? You're in a coffin, 10 feet underground, buried alive. And that's it. No one knows. (laughs) Now, unless someone gives you hope... Someone says to you, well, there's somebody looking for you, or somebody's going to miss you, somebody knows where you are, someone's going to save you. Unless someone gives you that hope, you have no hope. It's not something you're going to muster up, (laughs) buried underground in a vacuum by yourself. Or think of love between two people, husband and wife. If it's just you, and you just have an imaginary spouse... (laughs) It's impossible for you to truly have love because love involves a gift of self to another. And faith, really what faith is, is trust in relationship. So faith is a gift because faith is a response. Faith is a gift because faith is a response. A response. It's not an initiative It's a response to something else. This is so very key, and it's why faith is a gift. And it's why you shouldn't beat yourself up if you can't muster up faith, because that's impossible. What you need to think about is, what am I responding to? And it could be that you you struggle with faith because you don't know the person enough. You don't know what he's done for you enough. God reveals himself to us. There's an analogy I like to use. Imagine you wake up 
in a house. And the house is empty. You don't know how you got there. And you put on your Sherlock Holmes hat, and you go through the house, and you try to learn about who owns the house. Who lives in this house? You open the closet. Maybe you take a little peek in the medicine cabinet. Not that I've ever done that in somebody else's house. I wonder what they have in their medicine cabinet. You look at the photos on the wall. You look at the books they have. I think you can learn a lot about a person based on what books they have um, in their living room or whatever. You just kind of look at the books. You're like, interesting. Or look at their DVD collection. Ooh, interesting. They have Anna Green Gables. Mm. Well, Eldon, there are boundaries, but not for you, I guess. Never come over to my house, Eldon. You can learn a lot, though, about a person just by looking around in the house. And in the same way, we are here on earth, in the cosmos, in creation, the house that God has built. And we can learn a lot about him just by using our brains, our intellects, by examining creation. We can learn about the creator. We can. We call this a natural revelation or things that revealed about God in nature, sure. But who God is, what kind of God he is, a God who loves, a God who thirsts for us, who seeks us out, all of these things, the, the Trinity, the inner life of God, all of these things are outside of our grasp. We cannot, we cannot know these things just based off the house. What happens is that the doorbell rings. We go down to the front door, and we open it up, and there's the owner of the house. Now, once I'm face-to-face with the owner, it's like, forget about the house. Let's get to know the owner. Let's get to know the person. And that moment of encounter is what we call divine revelation. We've talked about this. But it's it's so key because he is the one who reaches out. He is the one who initiates. I've mentioned this before, too. I am Mr. Repetition. I will repeat it. I don't care. But the only difference... Like, there's, there's a lot of similarities between Christianity and other religions. There are. There's a lot of common truth. Christianity has the whole truth, and it is unique in respect to all other religions in that in all these other religions, it's all about humanity's search for God. Where is God? It's this ascent to God or nirvana or whatever. We're looking for God. But Christianity is unique in that it is all about God's search for us. God looking for us. God actually becoming one of us, getting down on his knees, in a sense, to find us. And so he rings the doorbell and introduces himself to us. In the Greek, Revelation is apocalypse. Apocalypse. And it's marital imagery, nuptial imagery of a wedding. Because two people would be arranged to be married. They wouldn't see each other during the entire um, you know, betrothal period. And even through the wedding, you cannot see. And I mentioned this when we talked about tradition. But you cannot see who the, who the bride is. 
It's totally hidden. Until they come together, after the wedding is complete, they come together in the marital tent to consummate the marriage. And the groom, for the first time, lifts the veil and shows himself to her. And she sees him. They see each other fully and consummate the marriage. And Revelation, whenever we talk about Revelation, it is also nuptial. The book of Revelation is about the wedding feast of the Lamb. It's about the the coming together of the Christ and His bride. Christ the bridegroom and His bride. And He lifts the veil from our face and we finally see Him as He is. You know, the early church fathers saw the crucifixion as the wedding. Isn't this interesting? The crucifixion. And the, what they pointed out was at the cross was the birth of the church. And I'll, I'll show you. First, as he dies, he gives up his spirit. And the early church father said, look, he's giving his spirit. And then they plunge the spear into his side and blood and water flow out. And the early church fathers pointed that and said, blood, Eucharist, and water, baptism. Spirit, confirmation. These are the sacraments of initiation. These are the sacraments you're preparing for. Baptism, Eucharist, confirmation. He gives a spirit. And then they pointed to Adam in the garden. Where did Eve come from? Adam fell asleep and God took out one of his ribs from his side and gave him a bride made out of the rib of Adam. And out of the side of, the, of Christ, the new Adam on the cross, comes the church, his bride. It's this marital imagery. Okay, I'm getting way ahead of myself here, but it's really important that we see everything, everything in the context of relationship. It's so key. And not something that we're mustering up, but something that has been given to us. God seeks you out. God calls you by name. God chooses you. He reaches out to you. I've got to go back to my roadmap to make sure I'm not so far off that I don't know what I'm doing. Okay, so he reveals himself to us through action, through his actions and through his words. But throughout all of salvation history, all of the history of humanity, God has been revealing himself to us, sort of lifting up one layer at a time and showing himself to us more fully until we get to Christ, which is the ultimate revelation of who God is. It is the doorbell ringing. It is him showing himself to us. So often we tend to think of faith as belief, don't we? We tend to think of faith as belief. Like once you've convinced me of A, B, and C, then I'll have faith. Because I'll believe. Isn't that what we... Let's be honest. That's what everyone thinks. Faith equals belief. But that is only half of the truth. Because faith is based in a relationship, on a person. Now, it is important to know about the person. It is. And God has given us ways to know about Him. And He wants us to know Him. But at the end of the day, it's not about knowing who God is. It's about a response. Remember, faith is a response. So, this is... 
I have done this analogy so many times. I apologize to people who have seen this like a thousand times. But I'm going to use this chair to teach you what faith is. Now, belief would be to look at the chair and to examine its construction and to say, you know, it has metal legs. It seems like it's been soundly designed. Plastic seat. Looks hard. And if I sit on it, I'm pretty sure that it could take all of my weight and I could rest my weight in the chair. I could write a dissertation about this chair. <laughs> okay. I could write books. I could publish books all about the chair and how beautiful it is and how it was constructed and the development over time of how the chair came into to, to being and all of this stuff. But you see, this is all just belief, right? It's knowledge. I could even say I am 100% convinced that I could sit in the chair. And there could be a skeptic over here going, mm, no, 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 I don't, you have to prove it to me. I don't, think, I, I don't think I could sit in the chair. And we could have an argument like I believe and you are a skeptic, you, don't, you do not believe. And we could have an argument about our beliefs. But there's no faith happening here. And as someone who studies theology... And so I do a lot of reading. I can tell you that a lot of theologians and scripture scholars have no faith. But they are chair experts. And you can learn a lot by reading them, but there is no faith there. In fact, there are some scripture scholars who are outright atheists. They said it. But they love talking about the chair. See, what it takes for me to have faith, as you probably guessed is that I need to actually walk over here and sit in the chair. Rest my whole weight in the chair. And you'll notice that I don't need to know very much about the chair to sit in it. You don't need to be a chair expert to come over and sit in the chair. Now imagine that this chair is a little bit more rickety. <laughs> or, even worse, you can't see it at all. Now how could I possibly sit in a chair that I cannot see? Think, 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 think. Now let's just divorce it from religion and theology and everything. Let's just dwell in this sort of science fiction here of an invisible chair. If I don't know there's an invisible chair there, I can't see it, how am I supposed to sit in it? Let's brainstorm. How do you think I could come to sit in a chair that I cannot see? Anyone? Excuse your imagination. Okay. Okay, now, I can't see it. It's in a really big space, and I don't even know it's there. So maybe I might be able to, ooh, what, what is this? I might stumble into something, but what do you think? I can tell you it's there. Okay, say I come in the door, and Eldon, ever the gentleman, is standing here, and he's like, Curtis, there's an invisible chair in this room that you need to sit in. I'd be like, really? I doubt that. But maybe I go through life being like, oh, I heard there might be some sort of an invisible chair. It's 
still it would take me a long time to find it and sit in it. What do I really need? God's grace. Well, we're outside of religion now. It's just, this is just science fiction here. We have an invisible chair. What do I need? Direction. Take a chance. Take a chance. So I'm like, well, it could be here. Ah! (laughs) What do you think, Terry? Indiana Jones is a handful of dirt. Yeah. Oh, okay. So I have I have tests. I'm testing the invisible chair. Yeah? You have to have faith in the invisible chair. Well, sure. Sure, but I don't even know where it is. Okay, do I have to tell you? You need to give us a little more time. Yeah. Okay, I'll give you a bit more time. We were, we're almost there. Eldon's standing at the door and telling me about the chair. Well, Eldon, go sit in. Ah! There we go. Eldon knows where the chair is. And he goes, and when I say, there's really an invisible chair? He's like, yeah, let me show you. He walks over, and he sits in it. And I'm like, how are you doing that? Now, he gets up, and I can't see anything, but it's suddenly a lot easier for me to be like, okay, this is where you were standing? And sit in the chair. Now you can see how faith is a gift. Because not only does God reveal Himself to us, but He surrounds us with His people who sit in the chair for us, our brothers and sisters in Christ. And they were, they were shown the chair by someone else. And I think if you think about it, someone has sat in the chair for you. Otherwise, you would not be in here. It could be a grandmother, it could be a pastor, it could be a stranger that you saw on the television, it could be anybody. But if you trace it back all the way, you know what you find? You find God Himself becoming a man and sitting in the chair for the very first time. And then telling His disciples, go into all the world and preach the gospel of the chair. (laughs) There it is. It's right there. You know, I know uh, where I got my faith from, if I can share a little story. And I think you may have heard this before too, but I'll tell it. When I was nine years old, my dad was a pastor um, in the Pentecostal Assemblies of Canada. So this is like, if you've heard of the Assemblies of God... It's kind of like Baptist, only with some tongues sprinkled in there, speaking in tongues and getting slain in the Spirit and stuff like that. It's kind of a charismatic movement. And my dad was a pastor, and they were working in southern Ontario, Canada. And he was, uh, wow, he was like 30, which is like six years younger than me now. And uh, my mom had a dream. They were already kind of wrestling with their vocation. My mom had this very powerful dream. It could have just been a bad piece of pizza. <laughs> but it was very powerful to her. She dreamt, she dreamt that she was on the top of a huge snowy hill. And there was like a mat laying on the top of the hill. And she just heard God say, get on the mat and go down the hill. And she's like, but it's just a mat. How am I going to break how am I going to steer? And God said, just get on the mat. So she gets on the mat and starts to go down the hill, and it's terrifying. But as she goes down, she starts to feel more and more exhilarated, and she starts to laugh, and she hears God laughing with her. And then she wakes up from the dream. 
with this conviction that they need to step out in faith, that they need to, they need to follow God's will wherever it leads. And my dad, amazingly, had a very similar dream that same night, only his was just skis with no poles. So maybe that was one crazy pizza, I don't know. But they looked at each other and they felt confirmed and they decided to do something radical. They sold everything that they had. He left the church that he was a pastor of and they decided to become missionaries overseas. And I remember it very clearly because some of that was my stuff. I was like, I didn't get a dream. My brother and I... Well, no missionary organization would take my parents because my, I was nine, my brother was seven, and they said that's a really horrible age to pull kids out of school. And I can attest to that. It really was a horrible age to pull me out of school. But they said, no, we feel like God is calling us. And so without any backing, they just flew to the Dominican Republic. And that's because my, my dad had an aunt who just had like an empty house over there. And they went and... We got to the Dominican Republic. I remember the first night we arrived. So we left everything behind. It was crazy. The first night we arrived, it was dark. No electricity because it's all like run on generators and stuff. This is 1989. And we walk in. And my dad has a flashlight. And flicks on the light. And there's this huge spider crawling across the floor. And, you know, (laughs) we're at the door. And I think I had coffee in here. And it's not spelled. <laughs> anyway, okay, so we're at the door, and my dad, being you know, the hero of the family, he's like, I got this. He walked over and just <coughs> squashed the spider, and suddenly just scattering in all directions, baby spiders. <laughs> all into the dark corners. It was like one of those spiders that all the babies over. And it just, they all kind of disappeared, and we all just looked at each other. <laughs> like, I'll never forget that moment. And then we had to go to bed. <laughs> Anyways, the next day, the very next day, we went down to the beach, and my dad and mom just had, like, bubble gum, like these boxes of bubble gum. And on one side of the beach was the resort, and on the other side of the beach, all the way down, was a slum separated by, like, sort of a a stream of sewage that was just flowing into the ocean. And so we walked from the nice part of the beach, past all the tourists, and then suddenly there's not a lot of tourists, to there's all these kids from the slum playing baseball on the beach. They're probably all major league players now. Um, And my dad and mom just start giving out bubble gum. They don't even speak Spanish. It's crazy. I remember going, what are we doing? They're handing out bubble gum. The kids then naturally bring them across the lake of sewage. We had to walk through this lake and into the slum called Rio Mar to their homes where my mom, in English, started to tell the story of the lost sheep, the parable of the lost sheep. And my dad, who was a cartoonist, was drawing the picture like on these you know, tilted wooden doors in the slum. And within five months, they had started a little church in that slum without speaking Spanish. They sort of picked it up as they went along. And they would, my dad learned the guitar, and they did all of this stuff, built this little church. And by the end of that time, there was missionary organizations like knocking on the door for my parents to come join them. And they ended up joining an organization called Asia Outreach. And we were in Hong Kong the next year. And I stayed there for 17 years. My parents were missionaries there. 
You see, the reason I tell this story is because it stuck with me my whole life. And no matter how many books I've read, or degrees I get in theology or biblical studies or whatever, that is not why I have faith. I have faith because I saw my parents sit in the chair. That's why I have faith. And you know, my dad died 11 years ago, January 25th, 2005. He's 47 years old. I miss him greatly. But you know, he continues to raise me in the faith. He continues to show me what it means to have faith. You know what the last thing he was doing when he died? He was doing something he did every morning with my mom. They were sitting on the couch, reading the scripture together. And after they read the scripture together, they prayed together as a couple, holding hands. My mom was praying. She heard a sound. She looked, and he had a, had a major heart attack. And it died while they were praying. I say all this because it's so important that you don't think that having faith has to do with what you know or some sort of apologetic or argument for the existence of God. That's all really good and important stuff. But faith is relationship. And my parents showed me what it meant to trust in a person, to lay all of their weight in a person. They sat in the chair. So, let's see, it's 11.05. Okay, I can do this. What is the chair? We've talked about faith, we talked about the person, but I think we haven't talked enough about, we never can talk enough about what the actual good news of the gospel is. And I want to tell you that story. Because maybe you've never heard it all the way through. I'm going to tell you my take on it. Of course, your whole life is going to be spent learning the gospel. But we often we can get in the habit of saying, you know, preach the gospel, have faith in the gospel, Jesus this, Jesus that. But if we don't know what the gospel is, you don't know what the good news is, how can you have faith? If you don't know who you're supposed to be trusting in, if you've just constructed a God in your head that you're supposed to have faith in, that's very dangerous. Remember, we don't make up who God is. God is God. He's revealed himself to us and we're called to respond. In fact, the catechism says, you open up the catechism, the first paragraphs of the catechism are about divine revelation, God revealing himself to us. The very next section is man's response, faith. So here's the good news. Humanity through sin. Untold millennia ago, this really did occur through sin, through disobedience, through the rejection of God's love. He was already reaching out. He was revealing to himself to us. And our parents said, we don't need you. And they disconnected themselves from life and love. And because of that bro broken relationship with God, something broke inside of themselves. And then the relationship with each other broke. And then the relationship with creation broke. 
and humanity scattered into a million pieces. And we see this in Genesis chapter 3. They eat the fruit. Then they hide from God, separated from God. They feel shame at their own nakedness. They're broke. Something's broken inside of them, themselves. Then when they're called out on their sin, they blame one another. Something's broken with each other. And then they have to be clothed in animal skins and sent into the wilderness, which means that an animal had to die because of their sin, breaking their relationship with creation. Do you see? Everything's broken. And we call it the falls because here's humanity and they fell and they can't get up. They can't get back there. Nothing they can do can get them back there. Now this, where they were, the Garden of Eden is not heaven. That is not heaven. That was a place where they were in relationship with God, where they could freely choose Him and enter closely into the relationship with Him. But they lost even the ability to freely choose. They made their choice. They jumped off and they fell down here. Now they can't even... They can't even be in relationship with God. They're broken. They can't get back. And so they've lost it, and you cannot give to your children what you do not have, you see? So original sin is not something that is passed on to people. Okay, It's like, here is this black baton of original sin. No, sometimes we do think of original sin as something that it's like a stain that we sort of pass on to the next generation. And so I have parents going, you really think that this cute little baby has sin? Mm." I'm like, lie from the devil. Because what original sin is, is nakedness. We were clothed in holiness and justice and righteousness. When we sinned, we lost it. And now we are cold and naked full of shame. And so when you have a child, you used to have a cloak you could hand him, you lost that cloak. So original sin is an absence. You can't give to your children what you don't have. And so humanity multiplies, increases, but it's all in sin, all in separation, all in brokenness. Okay. That's the bad news. (laughs) But the good news is, That from the very beginning, you can look this up, Genesis 3.15. From the very beginning, God has a plan to reconcile humanity back together. To save them. And in Genesis 3.15, as he's cursing the devil for doing this thing, for tempting them off the path, and for shattering humanity, for breaking the crown glory of his creation, as he curses the devil, he says, one day, the seed of the woman is going to crush your head. One day. We call that, in theological circles, the proto-evangelium. The first gospel. The first hint of good news. One day, your head is going to be crushed, Satan, by the seed of the woman. Not by me, or maybe by me. But through humanity, through humanity that you tricked, humanity is going to turn around one day and crush your head. This is very interesting. So then over, over time, God begins, you can imagine, uh, the analogy I often use is like a precious object that has been dropped from a height and shattered and it's just pieces are everywhere, just to the very corner of the room. You can imagine God carefully 
beginning to gather the pieces together. Every little piece. Trying to gather them together. Going to the farthest, darkest corner. And through first a chosen family, a chosen people, he begins to make covenants with them. Draw them back. Make them a priest among other nations that's going to bring all the humanity back together again. Of course, it's like he brings them together and then they fall apart. (laughs) He brings them together, they fall apart. They can't do it on their own because they still have that sin. They're still broken. So God is like, come, 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 come. People are like, I can't do it. It's like, sit in the chair, I don't want to. And he works so patiently with his people, but they just can't seem to get it. Until we have the incarnation. About 2,000 years ago, took place in history. God enters himself into space and time. Think about it. God is the creator of everything. He is outside space and time. He is outside it all. This, he made this. He's not part of his creation. But when the time is right, he enters into his creation as a man. Not just as a man, as a baby who needs to have his diaper changed. Yeah. Who needs to be fed or he'll die. He becomes vulnerable and weak. You know, no one would make this up. The best we could do as humans is think... If God became a man, he would like spring out of the rocks, you know, like Superman or something. We would never think that God, the Almighty, one God who created everything, the whole universe, would enter into a woman as a zygote, okay? And then an, an embryo, it's like a tiny little conceived human soul there. And then a baby that needs to be fed and washed and taken care of that can't even communicate. So he enters in. In fact, he becomes one of the pieces on the floor. So it's not just God reaching together. It's now he's one of us. And it's almost like he's a magnet. Everything starts to converge. It's like he's... I mean, God himself has now become one of us and begins to draw people to himself. It says in John chapter 3, I think it's 17... He says, like the serpent in the wilderness, which is a great story. It's a statue of a serpent that is put up on a pole. That everyone's getting bit by these poisonous snakes. But if they look at this brass serpent, then they're healed. He's like, like that serpent in the wilderness. So too will I be lifted up to draw all people to myself. So he becomes a sign of the thing that's killing us, right? A serpent. He becomes one of us, one of he he enters into our brokenness. He takes our sin upon himself, and by his stripes we are healed. And we're going to talk about this next week. But he enters into time, enters into space, takes on our weaknesses, takes on our struggles, and so he comes down here. And then this is key. He empties himself. He does what Adam should have done in the first place. He trusts totally in God the Father. And he demonstrates to us what selfless love truly is on the cross. 
He takes our sin, He takes our brokenness upon Himself and kills it in Himself. It's like He becomes our sin, nailed to the cross. And it dies and is buried. And then on the third day, He raises to new life. Sin gone. And now, one of the pieces has been glorified and resurrected. And we're all connected. And it's like He opens the way for all of us. It's like He builds the bridge. In the Old Testament, there was something called the Day of Atonement. And they did this every year. They would take an animal outside of the temple, the tabernacle, the Holy of Holies. they take a temple outside and they would slaughter it outside. And then they would collect the blood and the high priest would go into the holiest place, the Holy of Holies, where the Ark of the Covenant was, and he would bring the blood in and sprinkle it on the Ark of the Covenant to atone for the sins of the people. It says in the letter to the Hebrews that Jesus, the great high priest, was also the victim. So, down on earth, he is crucified, his blood is shed, but that's not the end of the sacrifice. That's only the beginning. Because then, as the great high priest, he raises from the dead, and then what does he do? Forty days later. (laughs) I'm waiting for someone to say it. I'm like, come on, ascends. This is so key. He has to ascend. He didn't just do it because he was like, ah, you guys got it. (laughs) His sacrifice wasn't wasn't complete. He just started it. If the priest at the Day of Atonement slaughtered the animal and then was like, all right, let's go get lunch. The whole point was not this. The whole point was bringing the blood into the Holy of Holies. And so Christ sacrificed himself on the cross for us, kills our sin, raises to new life, But he has one more thing to do. He takes the blood, his own blood of the sacrifice, the blood of a human being, okay? Humanity. He ascends and enters into the Holy of Holies. And it says in the book of Revelation that like a lamb standing and yet slain, he presents himself to the Father as a man and as God. He doesn't take off his man suit. He's still a man. And you see all the paintings with the scars? That's him standing in front of God on humanity's behalf. It's like humanity comes back into relationship with God and he shows his wounds. And you know what? He's doing it still. That's why when we celebrate the liturgy, we're not re-sacrificing Christ. We are entering into the heavenly liturgy where the sacrifice continues where Christ presents himself. Okay, now this is a lot, but it's important for us to see that this is good news. What Christ did was, he became one of us, what God, God did was, he became one of us through Christ. He sacrificed himself on our behalf, did what we could not, brings himself as a human and his sacrifice into the holiest place, the Holy of Holies in heaven. And by his offering of himself, we may all now join Him. We all come together with Him. If we are baptized, 
we die with Him and then are raised with Him. We take His, his body and blood into ourselves and we join our suffering, our little minute sacrifices, we can join them with His. He's like, add it to mine. Make it redemptive. And we become the body of Christ on earth. So He was like a seed when He was here that has been planted in death and has risen into a great tree. And that is the church. We are the body of Christ. You can be a part of His mission. You can have His strength flowing through you. We are all connected. We can... We call this in theology divinization. We can partake in the divine nature. We can be partly divine. Jesus says this, or Jesus, the priest says this when he sprinkles um, a little bit of the Eucharist into the cup and then pours a little water in that. He says, as you came to share in our humanity, may we through this Eucharist share in your divinity. We're not God, but we are elevated as, a human, uh, as human beings. We're elevated because Christ is drawing us to Himself. We join with Him. Okay. So, through baptism, we die to this fallen humanity and are reborn. But we're not reborn in heaven. We are reborn to paradise. And once again, we have a choice to make. Once again, it's like we got the reset button hit and now we're all Adam and Eve in the garden. And Satan is coming up to us saying, doesn't this fruit look delicious and tasty? He's tempting us off the path still. But now it's possible for us to make the right choice. God the Father pouring out His love for us and we have the choice to either respond in faith or reject it. The difference is now through our baptism because we're united to Christ, is if we do reject it, and that relationship is ruptured, and we are broken, Christ is still there in the church saying, come, touch me, and be healed. And that is what the sacrament of reconciliation is all about. Because we come back to the sacrament of reconciliation, and Christ through the church encounters us and reunites us back. So now we have this choice to make every day. We're in the Garden of Eden every day. We walk with Him in the garden, in paradise. And every day becomes a choice of faith, or choice of ourself. So, this is the good news. We are on the road of salvation. We have been given the opportunity to make the choice again. We were lost, God takes the initiative and makes it so that we can choose Him Again, this is not works-based salvation because He's the one who has taken the initiative. He's the one who's extended His hand. If I'm hanging off of a cliff and Jesus peers over the edge and says, take my hand, and I grab it and He lifts me up, did I earn my salvation? Interesting question. In a sense, it seems that way because I grabbed His hand. But... Could I have saved myself? No. Impossible. It's only through participation that we can be saved. He extends the gift of grace to us, but we must respond. He extends His hand to us, but we must let go of our own things that we think are going to save us, let go of it all, and grab onto Him. That's why when I hear that phrase, let go, let God, 
I always want to say, let go and grab on to God. That's a better way to put it. Let go and grab on to God. Okay. This comes to play in the creed. You know, the creed that we say on Sunday. And this is what leads a lot of people to think that faith is belief, because they're like, oh, a creed. The creed means I believe or I pledge myself. And when we talk, when we say the creed, we're saying, I believe in one God, the Father Almighty. I believe in one Son. But we forget that there's a little word in there, sort of snuck in there. It's a connecting word that changes everything. And I think a lot of people think, when they think faith is belief, they think that we say, I believe that there is one God, the Father Almighty. I believe that there is a Son. I believe that there is a Holy Spirit. When really, what we're actually saying is, I believe in one God. I believe in. We're not, we're not assenting to a list of propositions. We're pledging ourselves to a person. The creed is like uh, a bride and a groom saying vows and saying, I do. I pledge myself. I give myself to the Father, the Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. I give myself to the Son. This is why the unbaptized are dismissed before the creed. It's not because you can't receive the Eucharist. Otherwise, we dismiss you later. It's because the creed is an intimate exchange. It is a pledging oneself to a person. And until you have been baptized, until you have entered fully into that relationship, that marital relationship, you're kind of like engaged right now. <laughs> you're engaged. But once you've taken your vows, you stood before and you've said your vows and you enter into that relationship, then the creed becomes a renewal of your wedding vows every time you go to Mass. You get to renew your vows to God. I believe in you. I trust in you. The early church called the creed the symbol of our faith. The ancient word symbol, symbolon, actually meant half of a broken object. Now, isn't this weird? Why would we say that the creed is a symbolon of our faith, a half of a broken object? It's because in ancient days, before there were passports and driver's licenses and credit cards, if you wanted to purchase something, if you wanted to like sort of um, put something away that you could go purchase later, what you would do is you would have like a circle seal that was broken in half. And you would give the merchant half of the seal and say, I'll be back later to pick up the rest. And the way to prove that it was you who dropped it off, you would, they would give you the seal and you put it together. It's like, see, it's you. It's you. So the church called the creed a symbolon because it was a way that we identified ourselves with each other. It's like we all had like little friendship necklace, <laughs> little hearts that are broken. It's like I have half the heart, you have half the heart. We come together. So in the sense, as a church, we come together with half of our broken object and we match it with each other. It's like, yeah, we pledge together. We do this together. Another way that we remind ourselves of our response to God, remind ourselves of that intimacy, is with every sacrament, we say this powerful word, Amen. So when you receive the Eucharist, Amen. When you receive confirmation, Amen. 
you respond. Amen is a Hebrew word, which means, so be it, or may it be so. But it's so much more deep than that. It's so much more intimate than that. Because really what you're saying when you come to the sacrament, which is Christ Himself extending Himself before you in a physical, real way, reaching out to touch you, when you say, Amen, it really is like saying, I do. Christ is saying, I give myself to you, and you say, and I give myself to you. All of myself. Another reason why it's important to go through a process to really count the cost of this so that when you approach the Eucharist and they say the body of Christ, you can say amen with everything in your soul. Not just, yes, that is the body of Christ. Thank you. That's not what amen means. It is, and I give all of myself to you. I enter into this intimacy. That's why, continuing with the marital imagery, in the Bible, the euphemism for a, a man and a woman coming together in the marital act was they knew each other. Interesting. They knew each other. It's like a knowledge of the other. It's like, like deepest kind of knowledge, deepest kind of relationship. You know one another. And we give ourselves to God in that way. Remember that that whole marriage thing, the marital act, all of that is just a sign that's going to pass away when we come into contact with the real thing. Marriage and the man and the woman coming together to produce children, all of that is a temporary sign to teach us about God. Did you know this? That's why the church is so strong on the teachings about marriage and about divorce. Because marriage is meant to teach us about God and how He loves us. So we protect it with all of ourselves because it teaches us about God. It's a uh, source of grace for us. Okay, so all of that is about God. It's not the other way around. We don't use marriage as sort of to make an analogy about God. It's marriage itself is the sign, and God is the reality. Okay, almost done. This means that faith must influence everything. It makes sense to say that now, after all that preliminary. Because I feel like a lot of times when I teach like a baptism class to new parents, for example, and especially with my title of Director of Faith Formation, they imagine that faith is something that needs to be formed, right? Forming my faith. Faith formation. No. And they think, this is my life. And I've heard this in homilies. Here at St. Martin's, not from Father C. But here's my life. It's like a pie. And, you know, here's my family. They got a pretty good piece of the pie. And work. And recreation, maybe. Sports. And here's my faith. And here's buffalo wings. Very, very important part of my life. It's like, see, I just got to make sure I have room for faith in my life. You've heard that before, right? Make sure, you know, faith is important. Faith, family, work. This is wrong. This is a lie. You know how the devil gives us part of the truth? It's like, yeah, you need to make sure that faith stays part of your life. Make sure to go to church every Sunday. It's a lie. A lie from the pit of hell. 
This is the truth. This is your life. Faith is your whole life. And then within faith, you have your family, you have your work. But faith is the pie tin that contains it all. Faith is a new way of seeing the world. Faith is a way of seeing the world after you've entered into the relationship with God who's revealed Himself to you. I remember in college, you know, I like to pretend like I was just really angry and grumpy in college. You know, I'm sort of like a lone wolf. I'm by myself, I'm an introvert, I read my books, I, my hair was all long and crazy, and I was like, ah. But then I met someone. You know what, you, you know what this is like when you fall in love, and suddenly it's like, wow, the sky's so blue today. And you're just a little bit, you have a little bit of a spring to your step, and you're like, I don't even know why it was like that before. Everything changes because you're in love. You see the world differently, and it's like happens overnight almost because someone loves you and you love them, and the world is a beautiful place. Look at all the butterflies and squirrels. <laughs> That's a very shabby analogy for this. When we encounter Christ and we understand the good news and God and realize that this isn't just some expression of a human need for God, but it's actually reality, total reality, like this is the way it works. God created the universe, became a man to save me and give me a chance to be with Him. Then it's like, wait a second. Everything looks different. Everything changes. The way you talk to people change. Mass becomes an entrance into something that is really taking place. Everything becomes bigger than you. You realize that you have a mission, and it's not yours, but it's Christ's mission. Everything changes. Someone once told me, I need to live my life in such a way that if this was not true, Christianity, that my life wouldn't make any sense. You need to live your life in such a way that if Christianity was not true, your life would not make any sense. And boy, I'm really living up to that. Imagine if Christianity was not true, and like, this is my job. I'm like paid to be insane, basically. I'm like telling you, you need to let go of everything in your life and follow after a fairy tale. There's no way you can sit in this class and say to yourself, well, Christianity is true for some people. Can't, you can't come halfway. It's either true or it's not. Jesus, as C.S. Lewis famously proclaimed, you only have three choices with Jesus. He was either a liar, he was either a lunatic, or he was a lord of the universe. There's your choices. You can't say he was just a good teacher. Because he wouldn't have said the things that he said if he was just a good teacher and not actually God. Liar, Lord, or lunatic. It's called the trilemma. It's very famous. And here in this class, you can't just be like, well, Christianity is kind of cool, and I need to figure out some way to have my faith, the faith piece of my pie. I want to make that a little bit more strong. So I'm going to become a Catholic, because I think that's, that's what my family is. And No, that can't be the goal. The goal is you're blind, and God has opened your eyes to a new reality. And you will never be the same. And everything is impacted. Okay. Okay. 
I'll leave you with this image, and then we're done. I uh, I don't know where this is from, um, but I, I heard it once when I was taking a course in C.S. Lewis, like 15 years ago now or something. And uh, it's not by him, but it was part of the course. The, the professor brought it up, and it stuck with me. It, beca- it became sort of like my life image, like the image I just relate everything to. Because when we're called to sit in the chair, when we're called to do things that make it seem crazy if it wasn't true, the image I think of is a, is a lone figure, person, all by themselves, in the middle of a wilderness, and the sun is starting to set, and it's getting dark, and they're getting afraid. And everything inside of them, instinctually, is telling them to run from the dark and chase after the setting sun, to stay in the light. You need to stay in the light because you're so afraid of the darkness. But if you do that, you're just forever in twilight, tripping over yourself. What God calls us to do through the gospel, through faith, through that invisible chair, is He calls us to turn and face the darkness and race to the dawn. We turn to face the dark and race to the dawn. Because what we are as a church is a dawn people living in a dark world. And we live as though the dawn has already arrived. Because through the liturgy and the sacraments, it's like the eternal breaks through the wall of the temporal, of the mortal, of what we can see. It's like it reaches through. It's like the inbreaking of the kingdom of God. And it's telling us there's something greater. It's coming. And it's, it still seems small and insignificant and hidden. But one day, we'll see it in full. And so we run in the dark towards the dawn. And we are light in the world. By doing that, we show that this is not our home. We have a heavenly homeland that we race towards together. We join with one another in process like this, or when we come together in a liturgy and we put our broken objects together and we say we are in this together, we do nothing alone, we believe, we run into the dark, we sit in the chair for one another, we sit in the chair for our children, and we continue this parade of faith through history that was started when God reached out to us and showed us the way back home. And like the prodigal son, we return and he is already running to us. It's like we turn the corner and he's there, and like embrace us. Ah, where did you come from? God is always reaching for us, reaching out for us. Okay, let's close in prayer. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen. Good and gracious God, thank you for never giving up on us, for thirsting for us, for seeking us out, for reaching out your hand, for allowing us the chance to have faith. Thank you for revealing your face to us through your Son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Okay. Thank you. Church Dads is a regular show hosted by Mark Hawes and Curtis Ketty. Join the discussion by emailing the dads at churchdadspodcast at gmail.com and follow them on Facebook 
facebook.com slash churchdadspodcast. Want to change the world? Go home and love your family.